He truly believed that he had something to learn from everyone. So he never thought of anyone as not worth time or worth his attention. And so I think he was very careful. You know, no matter who would write in Darcy, he would write back. If it was a kid, if it was whatever, he'd figure out how to get a letter back to him. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Stephen Nichols. Stephen serves as the president of Reformation Bible College and chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries. He's also the host of the popular Five Minutes in Church History podcast and the author of numerous books, including R.C. Sproul, A Life from Crossway. Today, Stephen and I discuss the fascinating life and ministry of the late R.C. Sproul. He reflects on the first time he met Sproul and talked with him face to face, shares more about what R.C. was like in private as a husband, father, and friend, including his passion for hunting and love of practical jokes. And he explains the key theological emphases and controversies that shaped Sproul's public ministry. Let's get started. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to this good conversation with you, Matt. So let's just start back at the beginning uh, for you. When did you first learn about coming into contact with R.C. Sproul as, as an individual? I'm not saying in person necessarily, but just when did you first learn about R.C. Sproul yourself? Yeah, of course, I knew about his books. Uh, this is kind of interesting. The, the first book I encountered of his is one that very few people actually even know about. Uh, it was an early book that he edited with a Latin title, Soli Deo Gloria, <laughs> and then a subtitle even far more academic, Matt, a Feschgrift for John Gershner. Oh, wow. And I, th- I think it was all of 17 years old when I first saw that book. What year might that have been, would you say? Oh, I, I can't reveal those particulars. <laughs> <laughs> so this would have been 80s, 86, 87. So these are 16, 17 around there. And my dad was a pastor in Western PA. We'll, we'll get into this. I grew up only 20 miles from the Ligonier Valley Study Center. Uh, but my dad was an independent Baptist pastor, Schofield reference Bible. So we were on the, at that time of my life, I was on the different, the edge of the theological continuum than R.C. But someone had given my dad a box of books as a pastor, you know, they're just donating books for him. And so in that box of books, I remember two specifically. One was a really thick Calvin's Sermons on Galatians. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take that because it looked impressive because it was big and thick. (laughs) And then the other one had this Latin title, Soli Deo Gloria by this guy, R.C. Sproul. And I'm, I have no idea what this is or who this is. <laughs> and uh, and R.C. has an essay in that book on double predestination. Wow. That was literally my first encounter with the good Dr. Sproul. Do you remember your first, uh, your first thoughts on his chapter uh, when you read it? So honestly, I felt like I had just come home. Uh, I had I had leaned Calvinistic and Calvinistic in the doctrines of grace and reformed in the doctrines of grace, but I wasn't necessarily surrounded by that. And when I read it, and, and curiously, those two books, when I read it, 
in the opening sermons, I didn't read all of Calvin's <laughs> sermons on Galatians, I'll confess, but I did read some of the opening pages. And then, I, I, I guess I just went to Dr. Sproul's essay because he was the editor, so I went to it. But I felt like I had come home. Uh, I felt like this really expressed what I had come to see, what God had brought me to see in Scripture as a way to understand salvation. And then it was a couple years later when I was a college student in Philadelphia area that I would I was we were attending my my wife at the time we were dating and I uh, we attended Tenth Presbyterian Church. This is Jim Boyce when Jim Boyce was the pastor, and the era of the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And uh, that's where I first heard R.C. speak in person. Mm -hmm. Wow. So then beyond just uh, maybe being somewhat encouraged by some of his Calvinistic leanings and doctrines, do you remember any of those initial impressions of him as a man, as a preacher, uh, <laughs> as a teacher? Yeah, so so very funny story. So a friend of mine and I from college, we, we went and they did the book signings, you know, at these conferences and... So my friend had an RC book to, to get signed, and we're standing there in li line. And as he's getting it signed, he says to Dr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, by chance, are you going to be speaking in New Jersey anytime soon? And Dr. Sproul looks up at him with his gravelly voice, you know, <laughs> young man, if I am in New Jersey in the near future, it won't be by chance. <laughs> So I sort of said, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little terrifying. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, that was really uh, the extent of it. And then, of course, holiness of God and chosen by God. So like so many people, I really first came to know Dr. Sproul through the printed page. It wasn't until 2011 when I was invited down here, or 20, I'm sorry, December of 2010, when I was invited down here. Uh, to give uh, a couple talks at a conference that I met Dr. Sproul again and then started up that phase of our relationship. In between, it was it was the Dr. Sproul of the printed page that, that I got to know. Yeah, wow. And so, yeah, what was it like then? Uh, how did you actually get formally connected with Ligonier and, and begin working there? Honestly, Matt, I'd like to frame it as a true gift of God's kindness to me. And these last several years. So when I when I first met him at 2010, I had him revered as so many people do. This was Dr. Sproul and, and what a legacy. And I just so admired his ability as a communicator. Uh, you know, I love to write. I love to try to make church history accessible to laity. That's sort of a, a goal of mine and my own sort of vocational calling. He was the master at that. And so to just meet him, but then he just wants to talk about you. He he almost throws you off your game because you're prepared to throw theological questions at him, <laughs> or you're you're thinking you'll get some kind of lecture. The first couple of times I met him, he just wants to talk about you, wants to ask if you have pets, and then you he finds out you have a dog, and now you're off to the races talking about dogs. But what really impressed me about Dr. Sproul was his kindness. It's interesting. You talk to other people who had that occasion to get to know him, and it was his desire to be interested in you that sort of throws people. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, once we moved down here and I began here at the college and we'd spend regular time together, those were just truly cherished moments with Dr. Sproul. And I really, just really enjoyed the time I, I had to, to be able to be, to be with him. 
Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that he was just such a communicator, the consummate communicator. And, you know, you see even through the different phases of his public ministry and, and uh, his work, he was consistently able to communicate so much uh, to the average Christian. Uh, and so I, you actually write in your book, uh, R.C. was a communicator. He not only knew what to say, he knew how to say it. Precision, passion, power. So I guess a question is, where do you think that came from? Hmm. Yeah. So for one, he loved drama. He loved the drama of the old movies. Um, you know, this is the 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 silver screen era of Hollywood. Of the you know, so as a kid, he's going off to watch the double features of the vampire movies, the Dracula <laughs> and Frankenstein movies of Bella Lugosi and Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. So he was able to bring that level of drama into his speaking. I think the other thing is, and I, I try to make a big deal about this in the book, he's from Pittsburgh. Like there's just something about being, Pittsburgh is just a, a sort of real city and there's a, a solid sense to it. But I think in many ways, you can hear it in his dialect that he's from Pittsburgh, but you can also get a sense of just who he was as a person. Wouldn't put on airs. Um, he really didn't, I think, need to impress. He he could walk into the academic debate, hold his own, make the argument, but that's that's not really what he wanted to do. He really cared about people and wanted to take the message to the people. It's interesting, there's been some recent work done on Luther, especially by a Luther scholar, Andrew Pedigree, did this book called Brand Luther, and talks about how what Luther's real genius was, was the ability to speak to the populace. And that in many ways, that was one of the key factors that, that, that allowed the Reformation to take, and to take so deeply and broadly, was Luther's ability to take the message to the people. He could debate Cardinal Cayetan and the top Roman Catholic theologians, but he was primarily interested in being a populist reformer. And I think R.C. sensed that as well uh, and really wanted to do that. So he had some of these early influences, whether it was the silver screen and drama. He was, he was very capable with words, understood the power of words. But rather than go the direction of sort of academic obfuscation, he, he thought, let's go the route of clarity and simplicity and directness. And I think you see that uh, in his writing and in his ministry. Yeah, yeah. So many of us would know about Sproul as, as that public theologian, as a teacher, as someone who did radio shows and had a, a print magazine for a time and... Uh, he just kind of had all these old recordings of him teaching to a, a class of, of people. But I think it's interesting to learn a little bit more about him as a man in private. And you, you've shared a little bit about him uh, in that regard already. But um, what was his marriage like? I know he was married to his wife for, I think, nearly 60 years before he passed away. And they had uh, two children together. What was he like as a husband and a father? So interestingly enough, Matt, you know, part part of the way of, uh, through this biography, I thought in one sense, this is a love story of R.C. and Vesta, <laughs> the story of R.C. And it's one of those things you couldn't script it. 
better. Uh, so they first meet when he's in the first grade. She's one year older than he. So they first meet. He's in the first grade. She's in the second. Her family moved into his town just before the end of the school year. And you can sort of picture him. They're in the same elementary school together. So the elementary school was sort of right in the middle of their two houses. So his house is down the one side of the street, and her house is the other street from the elementary school. <laughs> and he sees her. He's struck by her. He swears that his first thought was, I'm going to marry that girl. As a first grader. <laughs> As a first grader. <laughs> her first thought is, she doesn't even remember seeing this boy. <laughs> She's like interested in making friends with the girls. And, and in that moment, <clears throat> the boys would hang out on the ball field and the girls would hang out on the playground. And that was pretty much all summer long. But he constantly had his eye on her. They were dating on and off through high school. He says more on. She says more off. <laughs> um, when he got a, a really nice car, that helped uh, him and his prospects. Do you know what it was? What kind of car? A Ford Fairlane with like decked out in chrome. I wow. mean, it was, oh yeah, it did the trick. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> it was what was needed. <laughs> um, so they go off to college and she goes to Worcester College, which is a, a all-female college at the time. He goes to Westminster and they start dating. And after he's converted, he's he's immediately thinking, I need to tell Vesta, but what if, you know, she rejects all this? What is she going to think of me? So he invites her to a Bible study and ends up witnessing to her, and she ends up coming to Christ. Wow. Uh, then they just continue dating, and then they get married as she graduates, but he still has one year of college. So he spends a senior year married to her. So there it goes back from the first and second grade, or the wedding goes back to 1960, and then it's interesting, I have friends, we have mutual friends with the Sproles, they're up in the Lancaster area, and their kids, their one young son, thought R.C.'s name was actually R.C. and Vesta, because <laughs> he always heard R.C. and Vesta. Wow. <laughs> so he referred, when he saw R.C. alone, he'd call him, you're R.C. and Vesta. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it's actually interesting, you know, I'm sitting here in my office, I have behind me portraits of Martin and Katie Luther. And it's very interesting. You don't find this in other historical figures, portraits of the husband and the wife. Uh, but you do find lots of portraits of Martin and Katie together. And I think, again, in many ways, the story of R.C. is the story of R.C. and Vesta. They were true sweethearts. Mm. Yeah, and what kind of role did she play in his public ministry over the years? <sighs> She's the, she is the editor with the non-forgiving pen. Oh, wow. Uh, so... Pretty much everything that he wrote and came out of Ligonier, she had she would read with pen in hand, and uh, even to this day, uh, she'll come in the office every day here on the campus, and she continues to uh, edit the material that that comes through Ligonier. So wow, she played a yeah she played a significant role, and um, she continues to serve on our board here at Ligonier Ministries, and she's also on the board of the college here. Uh, which we're just really happy to have her uh, serve in that capacity. And so then what were some of his favorite hobbies or pastimes? Did he have, you've already mentioned that he, he loved his dogs and maybe occasional other animals, but what else did he like to do in his free time? 
you know, I mentioned this in the book, it's probably an understatement to call sports a hobby. <laughs> if, if he could have been something else, he would have been a Pittsburgh pirate instead of a theologian. He did go to college on, a, on an athletic scholarship, and he was invited to a farm team right out of high school to play baseball. And he went to Westminster College, but he was also offered a baseball scholarship at the University of Pittsburgh. He, of course, went to Westminster on an athletic scholarship, but he loved all sports. He played competitively basketball, football, and baseball, but his most favorite sport was hockey. Hockey? Uh, the sport he enjoyed the most was hockey. Yeah, they. this was the classic, you know, they'd, they'd wait for a pond to freeze over and then just go out and play on it. And one time he did fall through the ice. Oh. He continued to play, got home. His parents rush him to the doctor, and it's a wonder he didn't lose his foot. <laughs> uh, so that's a man dedicated to his hobby. Uh, he loved hunting, uh, and this, of course, in the mountains of Western Pennsylvania. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. The first day of deer season in Western Pennsylvania is a school holiday. <laughs> Everybody hunted in Western Pennsylvania in the 1970s. Um, he loved to paint. Uh, so painting, he would had a sketchbook, and he also painted. Vesta said he was a messy, terribly messy painter, though, and that, that hobby just didn't work out. And then uh, at the end of his life, he loved puzzles. He and Vesta would do puzzles. He was working on a puzzle uh, when he got sick and went into the hospital just before he died. He left back at home an unfinished puzzle that Vesta finished off. Oh, wow. And then what was his sense of humor like? I think many of us have a sense that he was a, a funny guy and uh, loved, uh, loved to joke around. But what was that like? Yes. Yeah, so you always had to be on your toes with him. Uh, Steve Lawson, one of our teaching fellows at Ligadier, called R.C. the king of the one-liners. And he really was. He could just rattle them off. He loved to hear jokes. There were a couple of times where he and I, I knew we'd be on a platform together, you know, for a conference or for a college event. And there's always that sort of dead time where you're sitting up there on the platform. And everybody always wonders, you know, when you're sitting out in the audience, are they talking about some deep theological, are they talking about the biblical text they just read? Uh, I always went prepared with jokes. So I'd always ask my daughter, who's really good at coming up with jokes or finding jokes, like, I need you to give me a few jokes because I'm going to need a few for RC. <laughs> he expects it, huh? He expects it. And it and it didn't matter if it wasn't necessarily the funniest. If it was just a new joke, he'd love it <laughs> to hear it. So if, you, if it was corny, that's fine, as long as it was something he hadn't heard before. Um, but he had a great sense of humor. He liked to tease he liked to be teased. He would come up with nicknames for people and sort of have these playful nicknames. I was Snickles because my email is S Nichols. So <laughs> I was Snickles. Um, but uh, yeah, you always, you always just knew he was a little mischievous. Can I tell you one really funny story? Yes, please. I'm sure we all would like to hear us. All right. So I do, the, it was a constant battle of what not to put in the book because it would be too embarrassing on me. So we we had the dedic we had a new building built here, and uh, RC was not able able to see it get completed, which is really sad for me that he wasn't. But he he and I did the groundbreaking for it, and we got him a Steelers construction helmet and the shovel. And I had uh, prior to the event cut out a little piece of the sod and got it all loosened up for him and had it all separated, and it was right there. And I told him when we go out. I'll hand you the shovel and I'll just sort of tap my toe right where you put the shovel and you pull it out and all will go well. 
So he does. I tap my toe. He, he gets the little sod on the end of the shovel. And I'm standing right next to him. I have my black suit on, my black, freshly shined. You always shined your shoes when you're going to be around RC. And he has it on the shovel, looks up at me, winks, <laughs> and then tosses it on my <laughs> shoes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And of course, nobody else could see what's happening here. Uh, but I did. And, you know, what do you do? So you're convinced that was intentional. Oh, he it's the wink and that little mischievous grin. Then, you know, you're going <laughs> to you're going to get it from our. Oh, man. So then maybe on the other end, uh, were there any things that just really annoyed him? <laughs> well, I, so honestly, theologically, so this and this is what's interesting. I, you know, I think it's people and I mentioned this uh I think it's I think it's someone who truly understands what it means to have your sins forgiven to know true joy. Like there's there's something about genuine laughter and you you see it among Christians in genuine fellowship and it's because we know what we have to be joyful about. Mm. And so the flip side of that of course and if you want to talk about stuff that really annoyed RC, it was he grew, he came out of liberalism. I mean, he grew up in the church, sang in the choir in the church, never heard the gospel. Uh, he was in a liberal church, was in a liberal denomination, went to a liberal seminary. And so nothing annoyed him more than liberalism. And that having the treasure of the gospel and obscuring it and keeping it from people. So... Bad theology annoyed Dr. Sproul uh, because he knew how people needed the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was involved in so many, over the course of his life, so many different theological issues and even controversies at times. So I, I, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know one or a couple of the things that he was kind of involved with, but I wonder if you could even just walk us through what were some of those big theological issues and controversies that he ended up wading into in a significant way over the course of his life. First big one was inerrancy. And the fruit of that labor was the 1978 Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, produced by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And uh, there, just above your beloved crossway in Wheaton at the Chicago airport, Hilton, uh, this conference was held in 1978. That was such a crucial document. And you think of the battle over the Bible of that previous generation. Well, it's fascinating of R.C.'s involvement in that. A conference was held in 1973, sponsored by Ligonier, about 10 minutes away from the study center at a place called the Laurelville Mennonite Retreat Center, carved into the hillside there somewhere in western PA. And at that conference was J.I. Packer. He had just published Fundamentalism in the Word of God. Mm, wow. And that after that conference was coming out, a little book he wrote called Knowing God. Mm. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery was at that conference. Um, Peter Jones, who was a young professor at Westminster Seminary, was at that conference. Clark Pinnock was at that conference. And it was really the first conference among evangelical scholars to talk about inerrancy. That eventually led to the group getting together to form what was then the Chicago Statement. So he was early involved in that debate and then served alongside of his 
uh, foxhole buddy, Jim Boyce, as uh, leaders of the ICBI and was an early president of ICBI and, uh, and very much promoting inerrancy in the church. So that was the first controversy that he was significantly involved in. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would have followed that then? Well, uh, in the 1990s, there was the Evangelicals and Catholics together. And this, this is one of those moments in American evangelical history that you, you don't see coming. And RC didn't see it coming because now there's going to be a little bit of a divide between those that were on the same side back in the inerrancy. And of course, the, the main division here was, was with Dr. Sproul and his longtime friend, Chuck Colson. And then also J.I. Packer. And so Colson was significantly involved in the writing of Evangelicals and Catholics together with John Richard Niehaus, a former Lutheran turned Roman Catholic figure, wrote a big book called Naked Public Square and was sort of an influential person in D.C., got to know Chuck and, and through that was part of the ECT. And, and we could go into this. R.C. and Chuck had a relationship that went back. They were on each other's boards. Hmm. Uh, and, and I mentioned this in the book. There was actually a moment where there was a discussion of a merger between Prison Fellowship and Ligonier Ministries. Yeah, but you have to read the book to find out about, about that one. Um, and then, of course, Packer supported the statement. And on the other side was D. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, Mike Horton, um, of course, Jim Boyce and NRC. And they, they took a stand here and felt that ECT potentially undermined doctrine justification, specifically imputation. And uh, that was a difficult thing for RC to do, but it was one of those moments where he saw it as an important stand to take. Yeah, and Crossway readers and listeners will be uh, probably maybe especially familiar with J.I. Packer, who's who's such an important author with Crossway. Uh, what what kind of impact did that that difference of opinion on ECT have on Sproul and Packer's relationship? Yeah, so so immediately when Dr. Sproul found out about it, he called Packer and they discussed it. They they never did come to see eye to eye on it, and R.C. Uh, felt. Like R.C. Uh, would say to Packer, this is a defining issue. This is central to the issue, and it's it's essential to the gospel. And Packer would say it's central to the gospel, and R.C. would say it's essential and defining to the gospel. <laughs> so they just couldn't come to see eye to eye on it. But interestingly enough, I remember when, when Dr. Sproul passed away back in 2017, uh, there were a number of people that different folks of us here at Ligonier called just to share with them the news that RC had passed, and we wanted to reach out to them personally. And I, on my call sheet was Dr. Packer. And uh, I called him, and immediately his mind went back to the conferences they shared together in the 80s and 90s prior to ECT, back to the inerrancy moment. So even though there was that rift uh, at ECT and that difference of opinion, that both sides maintained, uh, you know, after the moment, uh, there still was that history of a friendship there between these two stalwarts. Well, it's wonderful to think of them now, both together in glory, uh, reunited, and, and any of those rifts healed. Uh, did Sproul ever change his mind on any significant <laughs> theological issues? I mean, you said he came out of a liberal Christian background, but anything maybe later in his life as a Christian, did he ever evolve in his thinking? That's a great question, Matt, because I think he's, 
you see that a lot in people. I think at the center of his thinking, absolutely not. In fact, right early on at the center is the holiness of God and the doctrine of God. And it's even there in his bachelor's thesis as a college student. Wow. Writing on Herman Melville's Moby Dick, you see in there his doctrine of God. And uh, there was a chapter in Moby Dick called The Whiteness of the Whale. And I remember one time telling R.C. that like in the class here at the college where I have him read Holiness of God, before they read it, I have him read The Whiteness of the Whale and then read the book. And he's like, his eyes got all real big. He gets right up in your face. He's like, that's it. That's it. That's the chapter behind the book, you know? So so if you haven't read Holiness of God or you've read it and you want to reread it, go read Whiteness of the Whale, Moby Dick, and then read. But anyway, Doctrine of God. Wait, had you you read his his thesis before you assigned that in your classes or did that just happen? Yeah, no, I, I, as in research for the biography, it came across the thesis and uh, that's when I thought, oh, I have to assign this chapter. And I love Moby Dick myself. Um, so my favorite chapter, though, is the shark attack chapter, but his is the whiteness of the whale. <laughs> but he would joke about eschatology. He said, at one point, he said, I think I've held every single view there is to hold <laughs> when it comes to eschatology. That's encouraging to some of us. <laughs> it is. And I said, well, I think there is a minor footnote to that because I don't think you were ever a dispensationalist, <laughs> much to the chagrin of John MacArthur, yeah. you know, his his good friend. That was the issue. They. But uh, so he held every position on eschatology. He did change his mind on the creation days. He went back and forth on that. And at one point, he was not a day age person, but but sort of a framework person. Yeah. But he was convinced that there is an implication here for the inerrancy position. That's how he took it. I know people like Al Mohler have a sort of similar approach to that. And uh, so he, he, at the end, was very much affirming. Now, he, this is where he was sort of not necessarily welcomed by the, the early earth, literal day folks, nor the other side, because while he held to a literal day creation, he felt like the Bible was silent on the question of the age of the earth. So he was very careful not to, uh, not to de- declare that it must be a young earth position, um, but he was a literal day person, and his mind did change over on that from time to time. Um, but when it comes to the, the doctrine of God, inerrancy, and justification by faith, you can see those at the core all the way through of, a, of 50 years of ministry consistency on those doctrines. Yeah, yeah. How did R.C. deal with his fame? Uh, he, he, he was in the, in the spotlight for, I mean, decades. He, he had a, a public ministry that, that reached probably at its peak, I'm sure, millions of people around the world. Uh, so how did, he, how did he deal with that? I think he always loved people. He tells a story in one of his books about uh, early on he had a job as an orderly and a janitor at a uh, hospital. And there was a guy pushing a broom that was a bit of an older gentleman. And turns out he had been an academic and a philosopher, PhD, professor in Europe, had to flee Europe under Nazi regime, and then under the communist takeover, never went back, and unable to find work in his field, and ends up pushing a broom in a hospital. And it was a sort of a pivotal, I think, thing for R.C., to recognize that so often people 
can be overlooked or can be underappreciated. I remember talking to Vesta one time and she said he he truly believed that he had something to learn from everyone. So he never thought of anyone as not worth time or worth his attention. And so I think he was very careful. You know, no matter who would write in Darcy, he would write back. If it was a kid, if it was whatever, he'd figure out how to get a letter back to him. And it's very interesting. What a lot of people don't know is a lot of prisoners, we have a big prison ministry here at Ligonier, and a lot of prisoners would write from time to time. What they don't know is most of the time writing back to them was Vesta. <laughs> and she used some, she used her maiden name of Voorhees rather than, than Sproul and her initial V Voorhees. And so they had no idea who this was, but it was Vesta. Oh, wow. But, but I think he always cared about people. And I think that gave him a proper perspective um, on his time. Now, at the end of his time, you know, some people, I, remember, I read a lot about how people say, oh, you can't reach him, he's insulated, and you can't go up and talk to him after a conference. Well, some of that was because of his COPD, and because of that, he's, he is very susceptible to pneumonia is what you need to guard against. And so, so there was a sense of just trying to keep him from shaking hands with, you know, a thousand people. But that was just towards the end, and it, it's not an indicator of how much he loved people and being around people. And I think that always kept him grounded. The other piece to it is he loved pagans and heathen. Um, so, you know, he had golf memberships at golf clubs and he, he would play cards with these guys over lunch. And a number of them came to Christ. Uh, one of them I write about in the book. And uh, there's quite a few of them that actually I've met here in Central Florida that came to Christ. But I think, I think just being around people and being around real people who could care less what he was. They didn't even yeah. know what he was. They didn't know how famous no, he was. They didn't know anything about him. And yet that kept him just grounded and uh, never seemed to be susceptible to that sort of celebrity image. Yeah, yeah. So when he looked into the future, um, were there things that worried him the most when it came to the, the health of the church, the health of God's people? going into this, yeah. you know, the future. Absolutely. I think a number of things, you know, you see this in Galatians. One of the last books he preached on was Galatians. So here is Paul who founds this church and Galatia become, the churches in Galatia become susceptible to a false gospel. Then you have Luther. He loved this. One of the last sermons that Luther preached at Wittenberg was basically chastising the the people in the pew because they were like sneaking off to relics and they were sort of going back to their old paths and ways. And so in what ended up being one of the final sermons preached at Wittenberg, Luther's chastising them for abandoning the gospel and turning their back on the gospel. And R.C. kept that or had that as well that sense that you just always needed to preach the true gospel and always needed to be aware of how susceptible people are to the false, false gospel. So contending for the true gospel in the church, preaching the gospel and an uncompromised gospel was very much a concern for him. He was very much in, concerned with awakening, spoke on awakening a lot. In fact, the, the theme of the 2018 conference for Ligonier was on awakening. It was a theme he picked. He died in December of 2017 before we could have that conference. 
But he purposefully picked, picked it because that was very much a theme that he wanted. And, and he would talk about, even in his own church, right across the way from me here, St. Andrew's Chapel, to, to pray for an awakening in St. Andrew's so that people would not just think they know the gospel or think they know Christ, and pray for awakening across the church in America and across the, the church around the globe. And so those were those were definite concerns that he had in addition to just the cultural pressures that you can see of secularism and pluralism that are really upon us every day from every angle of the church but that but that sense of not abandoning the gospel and being susceptible to a, a compromised gospel very much was was a concern of his for the church moving forward. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned him praying for uh, his own church, even that there would be more than just a knowledge of the truth or a knowledge of the gospel. And I think, you know, as we think about R.C. Sproul, I think one of the terms that might come to mind is he was a pretty intellectual guy who who spent a lot of time teaching ideas and um, teaching history and doctrine. And yet, uh, it seems like you're saying that he was keenly aware that that wasn't enough. It's not enough to know the truth, that we need to have our hearts uh, matching what we know. Would you say that's true? Yeah, it's great you bring that up. You know, we, we have this event here in Ligonier, we call it Reformation Circle. It's a, it's a group of some of our, our uh, significant supporters we meet with every year. RC loved that group. We, we usually meet with them in October. In 2016 or 15, either 2015 or 2016, as he spoke to that group, he spoke on being a disciple. And he spent time discussing the difference between a learner and a disciple. And he said, both learn, but the difference between the two is the one actually obeys and lives. And he said, Ligonier, from the beginning, we were not after only learners. We were after disciples. And he was all for learning. You must know before you can believe. You must know before you can obey. So it's not disciples instead of learners. It's not only learners, but disciples that move from just simply knowing the truth to obeying the truth, from just simply knowing God to loving God, from just simply affirming the holiness of God to embracing the holiness of God and then saying, I need to grow in holiness. You know, it's interesting. I, I look back on this, Matt, and it blows my mind. In 1984, he publishes Classical Apologetics, which is a classic text co-written with John Gershner and Art Lindsley. And back to nicknames, he called Art, Art the Dart. <laughs> uh, so you had Classical Apologetics, a classic text published in 1984. 1985, Holiness of God, a classic text. 1986, Chosen by God, another classic text. In 1987, Loving God, which I think is one of his best books, really enjoy that book, it's not as well known. Then in 1988, he writes Pleasing God. And in one sense, all of those books led to that one. And Pleasing God is actually a book on sanctification. And it's been republished recently as Growing in Holiness. And that's all, it's not just holy, 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 and we have a worship course and we leave enraptured in ecstasy. It is that. But then it is 
now we have an obligation to grow in holiness as children of a holy God. So that is so great you picked up on that because I, I think that really gets to the heart of what he wanted Ligonier to be about, what he wanted his ministry to be about, not just learners, but disciples. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, spending some time today to talk us through uh, R.C. Sproul's life and the things that you learned from him. Uh, we appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure and uh, grateful for you all at Crossway and uh, for your ministry. May God bless it. That was Stephen Nichols on the life and ministry of R.C. Sproul. For more, pick up a copy of his new book with Crossway, R.C. Sproul, A Life, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.